Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly with you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll hear about Israel's recent designation of six Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. Why did it happen? What could be the implications for civil society in the Palestinian arena? We'll hear about this story from Haaretz West Bank correspondent Hagar Shazaf. But before that... Iran announced that it is ready to return to nuclear talks with the United States and other world powers by the end of November. The United States at the same time says that while it wants diplomacy to succeed, other options are also on the table. And where does Israel stand in this story? We'll figure that out with our first guest. Hello, Dani Sitrinovich. Hi. Senior Fellow at the Institute of Policy and Strategy at Reichman University, and previously the head of the Iran branch in the Research and Analysis Division of the Israeli Defense Intelligence. Great to have you with us, Danny. Uh, thank you for having me. So we heard last week Iran's chief uh, negotiator announcing that nuclear talks with world powers will be resumed during the month of November, which just began. How optimistic should we be that uh, any kind of deal can be reached? Well, it's a great question. The fact that the, the, the discussions or the negotiation is being renewed doesn't say much about the chances of reaching an agreement. I think that the obstacles are still there. Uh, from the Iranian side, there is really mistrust in the US side. And I think that the fact that they changed the negotiators will not help the negotiations. And we have to remember that uh, the Iranians still refuse to meet with the American side. So uh, these are really an obstacle that will prevent probably some sort of uh, progress, at least at the first stages. But in the long run, I think that both the U.S. and Iran doesn't have other choice than returning back to the agreement. It's basically the only game in town. Exactly. I think when people discussing on Plan B, you know, I heard about the U.S. administration, Plan B, I think we, that... When we heard uh, Secretary Blinken, for example, yes. saying, right, all the options are on the table. Yes, I think both, both options are on the table, meaning that, look, Iran, uh, we have other options in mind, and please return back to the negotiation. But I, but I think that practically, I don't see the Americans doing much regarding Plan B, and even if they will be forced to do so, if they will be forced to, uh, again, impose sanctions on Iran, I think... I think at the end of the day, it's only to push Iran back to the negotiation table. Let's hear a short uh, news clip about uh, this potential return to talks. President Biden says negotiations with Iran will soon be back on. He made the announcement at this weekend's G20 summit in Italy. The president met with German Chancellor Angela Merkel, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and French President Emmanuel Macron to discuss Iran's growing nuclear ambitions. The group released a joint statement saying the situation in Iran, quote, underscores the importance of a negotiated solution. Mr. Biden is also pushing a message that the U.S. is committed to its allies and face-to-face -face diplomacy. Danny, in your view, what of all the obstacles that you mentioned will be the easiest one to solve? <laughs> I think the easiest ones to solve actually is, uh, surprisingly, 
agreeing to the basic of the agreement. You mean some kind of framework? Exactly. I think that the framework is already there. You know, It's I think the 2015 agreement. Exactly. But the American side discussed previously about longer, stronger agreement. I think that now Secretary Blinken and President Biden truly understand that if they want to return back to the agreement, they'll have to return back to the original one. No extension, no adding missiles restrictions or original activity and, su- and such. I think at the end of the day, they understand that this is the framework. Now, in order to reach this framework, it will take some time. But I think eventually this will be the principles of the agreement. Back to square one. Exactly so. W- wouldn't that be somewhat of a disappointing development from the Israeli official point of view? Because Israel also pushed the Americans to improve the agreement, supposedly. Yeah, uh, well, there is a question, what is the Israeli uh, policy right now? I hear Prime Minister Bennett speaking against the JCPOA. I'm hearing the Defense Minister Gantz talking about the importance of agreement. So it's very hard to understand what is the current policy of Israel towards an agreement. I think at the end of the day, looking at that, I think that the only way To push back to roll back the Iranian nuclear program is uh, uh, returning back to JCPOA other options that already Israel tried like doing things in the nuclear sites or imposing sanctions through the US and so forth uh, they didn't had much effect on the Iranian progress in the nuclear route you mean for example the maximum pressure approach that we saw under the Trump administration with strong encouragement from former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that did not yield the result that Israel hoped for. Yeah, I think it's a naive approach to force the Iranian leadership to choose between nuclear program and survival. Because for them, survival is the nuclear program. Can, so, you, can you elaborate on that point? Yeah. yeah, when you talk about the nuclear program, why Iran really have nuclear program? Yeah, in between 1999 and 2003, they tried to develop a nuclear bomb. But they abandoned that, that try. What they're doing now, for them, it's important. They see it themselves as a superpower. Like every other superpower in the Western world, they're entitled to have a nuclear program. From their point of view. From their point of view, even more than that. After the 2013 uh, discussion that started in Oman, the first thing that was on the table was the acceptance of the U.S. administration that Iran has Iran. right to enrich uranium as long as it's not for military use exactly so the fact of the matter is that Israel is really fighting the previous wars yesterday's battle exactly because when you're looking at that in a realistic way the Iran really crossed the Rubicon in a way meaning that you can't roll back you can't ret- returning back to zero enrichment is like returning back to zero infections in covid it's really irrelevant and You have to learn to live with it, is what you're telling us? We have to learn how to live with it, but we have to make our most efforts to make sure that Iran is not using its nuclear civilian program to military use. I think this is what we are aiming to do. This is what we uh, have to do. Now, returning back to the agreement, I know that it has its downfalls, but at the end of the day, how else we can roll back the program? Because today, basically, ever since the step that was taken by President Trump, it seems like Iran is operating outside the bounds of the agreement and is doing pretty much what it wants. Yeah, well, the, the thing is that, okay, U.S. withdrawal from the agreement, then what? No strategy, nothing. No plan B. No plan B also. And I, we know what Israel tried to do. Uh, the previous head of the Mossad already acknowledged the fact that Israel tried to... to to do some stuff in Natanz, and he said that it will have an enormous uh, implications. It will push back their plan, it will push back the deadline. Yes, exactly, but nothing happened, you know, because, and this is, I want to really emphasize that, Iran's nuclear program is vast, is robust. Even more than that, the knowledge is really all over. 
And why it's so important? Even if tomorrow there won't be an attachment for door, earthquake, something happened, and there is no nuclear sites, the knowledge is still there, and Iran, with motivation, with the capabilities, will able to build new program from scratch. Even after all of those nuclear scientists that mysteriously died? Yes, because the knowledge is not located in one scientist. It's all over. And this is, the, this is maybe the biggest problem that we are facing. The knowledge is there. You cannot erase knowledge. If you, even if you have F-35, they cannot erase the knowledge that within the minds of the Iranian nuclear science. Danny, you were in Washington, D.C., working for uh, the Israeli embassy uh, during the first years of the Trump administration. Looking back in retrospect, what do you think about Israel's approach towards uh, Trump's Iran policy? I think that I will connect that also to the Israeli policy that back then. I think it's failure, total failure. I think that there weren't, like we discussed, no plan B, and uh, the Iranian didn't have any restrictions on The pressure was not enough, and as we discussed earlier, the maximum pre- pressure will not force Iran to forego its nuclear ambitions. It will not happen. If you know the Iranian leadership, you know it's not, ha- not going to happen. So combining that, we left the agreement that really rolled back the, the, the program, significantly rolled back the program. And then what? I have to, to emphasize one important thing. They really broke the threshold in so many ways. They're using highly advanced centrifuges, then reaching to 60 percent. dealing with uh, metal uh, uranium, these, these things are really unacceptable in so many ways, but you cannot f- uh, cope with that right now because you left the agreement. And actually, even more, more serious than that, China and Russia really think that the U.S. to blame. So nobody is putting pressure on Iran right now. And I want to hear for a second some words that President Joe Biden had to say about the previous president's policy while he was running for office. The only way out of this crisis is through diplomacy. Clear-eyed, hard-nosed diplomacy grounded in a strategy that's not about one-off decisions and one-upsmanship. Diplomacy that's designed to de-escalate the crisis, protect our people, and secure our regional interests, including our counter-ISIS campaign. No one wants war, but it's going to take hard work to make sure we don't end up there by accident. So that same Joe Biden has now been president for uh, 10 months. How do you grade so far his approach to the Iranian file? I don't want to grade the U.S. president, but I think that uh, it's quite obvious that the administration wants to turn back to the deal. For him, it's critical as looking to, for pivoting to Asia and, and, and really, I want to say, leaving the Middle East, but I think that they have other things in mind. It's so, not the top priority anymore. Exactly. So the basic, you know, the important piece of the puzzle is returning back to the agreement. The, the Clinton administration doesn't want to turn back to sanctions. Of course, let alone speaking about attacks and kinetic attacks against the Iran, this is not on the table whatsoever. So I think for now they are trying, but the problem that they have that Iran is very tough. You know, the changing of guards between Rouhani and Raisi are critical. Iran is playing hard to get, and it will be very hard for the administration to attempt to agreement unless he really will forego most of his positions. We heard Secretary Blinken saying that America is completely coordinated on this issue with the other Western allies, Germany, UK, France. Do you think that's actually the case or are there different approaches within that group? I think that the problem that the U.S. has is not with Germany or UK. I think the problem that they have is with China and uh, Russia. The other uh, signatories on the agreement. Exactly. And, and why? Because Iran really, when you ask what is Plan B, Iranian Plan B, So the Iranian plan will be based on two things. First is what we call economy of resistance. 
like building a uh, walking to, within Iran to develop your own economical capabilities so they can withstand another set of sanctions exactly but even more important that walking with China and Russia really to counter the sanctions to and build some kind of a, an alliance maybe also with uh, Venezuela I would guess exactly and other regimes that can share some kind of cooperation to overcome exactly exactly so if China and Russia is not on the US side it will be very hard to push the Iranian back to the negotiation table so in that sense I, I think that the, what the, the administration needs to do is really to working with China because China is really the biggest uh, importer of uh, oh, Iran. working with China is almost a sinful uh, phrase for the Biden administration exactly. today. exactly and this is the problem for the administration because if you're not working with China to minimize the oil being imported to China then it's a problem because then the, the Iranians think that they have the ability to sustain the sanctions and So we've been talking a lot about the US Israel relationship and the cooperation around this maybe the more important event recently was Prime Minister Bennett's meeting with President Putin in Sochi yeah and I, I, I guess uh, my assumption is that they talked also about that but the Russians you know they you implementing Russians policy meaning that you never know what they intend to do I think that for the Russians it's important for the Iran to attend back to the negotiations but I think that they expect the US side to show more flexibility on what for example uh, for example, on not adding nothing to the agreement the text as it stands text as it stands lifting of all sanctions those things that for the Russians are goes without saying if you want to return back to an agreement and I think they will be very supportive of the Iranian position in this regard in the years that uh, you worked on the Iranian file in the Israeli uh, intelligence community there seemed to be a split between Prime Minister Netanyahu and many of the senior defense and intelligence chiefs of the country and Do you think we are seeing a similar split today between political and the defense/ intelligence uh, officials or is it more of a coordinated message under the new Bennett Lapid government? I hope it's well coordinated but from the declarations I hear it's not coordinated everybody's speaking his mind but there is no co- coordinated uh, one message one message unfortunately I think that we turn it back to 2015 I think that for the IDF it was extremely important to focus as more immediate threats like mm-hmm. Hezbollah like Hamas and I think that back then Lieutenant General uh, Gadi Eisencourt really believed that it's important to focus on that and the agreement really serves Israel interest now because it's pushed back Iran's uh, immediate ability to threaten Israel with a nuclear development exactly and I think that look when looking at the JCPO it's not a complete agreement it has its flaws especially regarding what we call the sunset clause and the fact that it's limited in the in timing and so forth but it's the only way to roll back the Iranian nuclear program the only way what about change inside Iran we've heard over the last I would say decade two versions from different American administrations of how change could happen inside the Islamic Republic President Obama has had a theory that the nuclear agreement by opening Iran up to the world maybe would lead to change younger people would want to have stronger ties with the West and have a different lifestyle and the regime would lose its grip and then under President Trump we saw the opposite approach maximum pressure sanctions let's break their back and the regime will collapse do you think one of these scenarios has any a uh, realistic chance to happen in the next few years I have good news and bad news okay <laughs> we, we, we in the news industry like both okay so uh, regarding bad news it doesn't matter who will control Iran whether it's the moderates or the conservatives uh, the nuclear program will stay 
Even if it's a different regime altogether? Exactly. The consensus it's more is more It's a nationalistic thing. Yeah, nationalistic thing. And I think they are truly supportive from both ends uh, of, the, uh, of the Iranian politics regarding the program itself. I'm not saying about the bomb. I'm saying about the, the actual existence of nuclear enrichment program in Iran. For them, it's pride. It's a nationalist issue. So this is the bad news. The good thing or the good news regarding that, that the economical situation in Iran is dire, extremely dire. And I think that adding to the COVID and the economical sanctions and the problem with infrastructure and so forth, and even I think on top of that, the fact that Raisi really doesn't have tools to deal with that. So I don't know what will happen in the future. You know, it's very hard to predict coups and revolutions and things like that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even there. But I'm saying also there is an opposition within the leadership. I think that Tuhani and Larijani brothers really are against what Raisi stands I don't know how... Where is the main dividing line there? Take our listeners a bit the, into that story. The issue of what is the future of the revolution and how you're strengthening the revolution. For IC and his former minister, Amir Abdelayan, it's the issue of exporting the revolution, about working with the axis of resistance. In Lebanon, in, in Lebanon, Syria. In Lebanon, in Syria. And we'll see that happening. Since Abdelayan enters his office as foreign minister, he visited twice Syria, once Lebanon. So we see that happening. For Zarif and Rouhani, it's all about approaching the West. For them, in order to preserve the Iran leadership, you have to work with the West. And they are still there, although they are opposition right now, and they are working with that behind the scene. But, but Iran, it's not black and white. It's not that everybody are conservatives that want to destroy the state of Israel. It's not like that. For Rouhani and Zarif, they couldn't care less about Israel. They just want to approach the West. Now, they're not in control. They have problems of their own. But I think that it really shows that the opposition is there. And when the time is right, maybe things will happen in the, in Iran, in the Iranian domestic arena. You mentioned COVID. I remember that in the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like Iran was suffering uh, very badly from the uh, outburst over there. Where are things today in Iran on COVID-19? Uh, depends who you're asking. And nobody knows exactly uh, because it's Iran. Iran really suffered from it, especially because of the fact that the Supreme Leader was against getting vaccines from the West. Why? Again, it's all the notion that the West is against Iran and probably they want to poison us and uh, uh, and, and he doesn't want to rely on the West in order to save the Iranian people and so forth and so forth. It's Fa- really f- fascinating to see that the supreme leader of Iran joins the most extreme political elements in other countries to have an anti-vax ideology. Uh, something like that. Uh, but what they did since then, they're truly trying to develop the Iranian vaccine that nobody knows how effective it is. But also they're getting uh, help from India and also from China. China and also from Russia. So now they're really pushing hard in the vaccine. I think this is what really RIC is doing right now is really investing in the vaccines issue. The, the, the situation is still problematic, but I think it will improve once they will vaccinate most of the uh, Iranian public. Mm-hmm. So uh, to end our fascinating conversation, um, what do you think is the most likely outcome of these renewed talks that are going to start in the coming weeks, at least in the short term? Well, I think it will take some time. I think that the chances are there. But again, if they will turn back to the JCPOA, it will be the same old JCPOA. No new agreement, no longer stronger. And we have to accept this fact. Even if not, then there won't be any military strike by the West. We and have to end by Israel. Uh, by Israel, again, I don't know, but I think one thing that's important to say about military strike, we discussed about the fact that you cannot erase the knowledge of the Iranian scientists, even if you are 
having an, an exemptual strike that really aimed against the Tans and Fodor when you're succeeding in that, at the end of the day, the knowledge is there, and then they will be able to do, to develop the program without restriction, without inspection, with a lot of motivation. That's one thing. And one other thing that we have to remember, if we'll strike Iran, then Hezbollah will retaliate against the state of Israel. We'll find ourselves in, a, in an escalation in our northern border. So in this regard, I don't know whether yes or no, but we have to consider the implication of a strike in Iran. It's not going to be just one uh, strike and it's over. No, no, it's not Iraq and it's not Syria. Those are really different nuclear programs, but also different outcome to the attack. Danny Sitrinovich, Senior Fellow at the Institute of Policy and Strategy at Reichman University and formerly the head of the Iran branch in the Research and Analysis Division of the Israeli Defense Intelligence. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Up next, Haaretz West Bank correspondent Hagar Shazaf about Israel's decision to designate Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. Hello, Agar Shazaf, Haaretz correspondent in the West Bank. Hello. Great to have you here with us. And we're going to talk today about Defense Minister Benny Gantz's recent decision to designate six Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. You've been covering this a lot in recent days. Um, six groups overall uh, getting this designation from the Israeli side. Can you tell our listeners in a few sentences who are these organizations and what do they do? So as you said, we are talking about six different organizations. Therefore, we're talking about organizations with different goals and different work. One of the most well-known among them is Al-Haq, which is, I think, a world-known uh, human rights organization. They do quite a lot of work in terms of bringing uh, the case of uh, Israel and the Palestinians to the ICC, and they are most well-known for that. Their director, Shawan Jabarin, in the past had a travel ban. Uh, Israel did not allow him uh, to go abroad, although that's not the case anymore. In addition to their work, let's say, about the ICC as well and about uh, Israel's um, human rights violations in the West Bank, they also have reports about the Palestinian Authority. Um, human rights abuses within the PA, not just from the Israeli side. Yes. And then you have an organization which is also quite well known, Adamir, which provides uh, legal aid to Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. And they also do campaigning around the subject of administrative detentions. And you have uh, organizations that are far less known, like the Union of Agriculture Workers. It's like a workers' union, basically? Um, it's an organization that aims to encourage Palestinian agriculture. And specifically, they focus a lot around agriculture in Area C, mm -hmm. uh, which is the area that is fully controlled by Israel. And they do quite a lot of work in that field, which makes Israeli settlers as organizations quite mad uh, with Because them. they see the land being used for agriculture. Because it's, that's a whole different topic. But in Israeli right, there's this term called the battle over Area C. They think the Palestinians are taking over the, the lands yes. in this way. Yes. So this is so that's of the UAWC, the Union of Agriculture Worker kind of does just that. So we see how everything connects here. And, and I saw also one organization deals with women's rights and right. children's rights. Right, right, right. You have the DCIP, which uh, deals uh, specifically with uh, children uh, in, in detention in Israel. And you have uh, the Union of uh, Women, which also does stuff that has to do with like women's rights, also in the context of the Israeli occupation, obviously. I do need to mention that so some of these organizations, it, this is not the first time we heard about them in the context of uh, allegations 
questions about the connection to the PFLP. Yeah, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is considered a terrorist organization by Israel and other countries. And basically, the heart of the accusation right now being made against these groups is that they are some kind of a front for the PFLP. Yes, so basically what Israel is claiming now that these organizations are some sort of like a front. When you look at the designation actually, because each and every organization had its different like order that came out designating it as a terror organization, you see that there are also differences there. Some organizations Israel is claiming are basically a mechanism for money laundering for PFLP. And others like uh, Al-Haq, for example, the designation goes much less farther than that. Progress is the causes of the PFLP or something like that. So I think from the texts of the designations, you can also see that it could be. We don't know what the evidence is. We are not able to see it. So we are not able to see it and we don't know what it is. And, you know, it's all done by the Shabak, the Israeli Shin Bet, the secret services. But when you look at the text, it's also apparent that all organizations, even in the eyes of the Shabak, are not in the same place. There is some kind of a hierarchy who is more close to the PFLP and who is less. Yeah, exactly. This has led to some backlash from Israel's allies abroad. I want to hear, for example, what the State Department spokesperson Ned Price had to say when the news first broke last week. We believe respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms, And a strong civil society are critically important to responsible and responsive governance. We'll be engaging our Israeli partners for more information regarding the basis for these designations. How has the Israeli government tried to explain and defend the decision in the face of criticism from other friendly governments? So... I think that in order to understand this decision, uh, we need to go back to 2019. Because in 2019, there was an attack. Uh, a girl was uh, murdered. Rina Schnerb. Rina Schnerb. She was murdered in the West Bank in a spring called En Bubin. That's close to the Dolev settlement in the mm-hmm. West Bank. Mm-hmm. And after this attack happened, an investigation uh, started very quickly after. It was said that it was carried by operatives of the people. FLP in the months following was a big wave of arrests of people who had been suspected in different degrees and in different circumstances in affiliation or in the being a member of the PFLP. One, one famous name that maybe Haaretz readers uh, uh, followed at the time was Halida Jarrar, who is a member of the Palestinian parliament. She was recently released, I think. But yeah, so, uh, her arrest was part of that wave at the time. Right. So the wave was very, very wide. It included um, university students and it included prominent figures like Halida Jarrar. And it also included people who Israel then indicted as really being part of the murder of uh, Rina Schnelb. After a couple of months, It was the indictments of Samer Arbid, who was an employee of one of the organizations that is now being designated as a terror organization, the UAWC. There was another indictment of someone called Abdel Razak Faraj, who also works in in one of the civil society organizations, and you have the indictment of uh, Khalid Jarrar, for example. And these indictments told a certain story 
about the um, attempts to revive the PFLP in the West Bank. So basically there are civilian organizations, politicians, activists, and uh, Israel says they are part of an attempt to build this network to support a terror organization. So that's even before that. So what I'm talking about happened in a direct uh, relation to the murder or following it. And then at the end, for example, Khaled Ajarar, who was, you know, when she was uh, arrested, I think the Shabak, or maybe I'm mistaken, put out a, a PR really saying because there was a lot of criticism was, that she she's a member had, of parliament she, yeah and she, that she headed this uh, you know terror organization suggesting that she was really involved in the murder and then at the end when you look at the indictment the indictment talks about membership in the PFLP and it doesn't mention her knowing or being part of the murder for example the so, indictment and the PR release were worlds apart is what you're saying yes that's what I'm saying so you had this big wave of detentions and And it never really stopped. I think it's safe to say dozens of people were detained. Some of them released, some of them weren't released, some of them signed plea deals. And then the next point in time we should talk about is that last May, Israel indicted four employees of another civil society organization called the Union of uh, Health Workers. And... These were the first indictments that talked about this financial mechanism that they are describing now. What financial mechanism? So basically, the indictments in these four cases talk about how funds uh, that were given to the organization from donors ended up at least partially funding PFLP activities. I do have to say, when it comes to the HWC investigation, I know the investigation material quite well by now. And I think that, first of all, two of the employees who were indicted were actually fired from the organization. Mm -hmm. And the claim was that they were fired because they diverted funds. Mm. (laughs) So uh, we need to take that into account, I think, first of all. And then second of all, their version about why the funds were diverted kind of changes throughout the investigation. Sometimes they say that it was in order to cover up for deficit that the organization itself was in. And sometimes they say that it went to fund PFLP activities. What sort of PFLP activities they talk about stuff like a summer camp and lectures and different stuff like that. And, you know, they do give some statements about it could have also or I assume it also funded the military wing or, you know, but judging from what I saw. And again, I'm not saying I saw everything because as a journalist covering this topic is also quite tough because the Shabak, the Shin Bet, does not give us the evidence. I don't know what is the full evidence to, to the case of the HWC as well. All I know that there I can talk about the actual testimonies that people gave. It's really interesting to get the sense of what the background to this decision is. I want to hear now two reactions to the decision. One from Sahar Francis, who leads the organization Adamir, one of the groups that was designated. Let's hear her reaction to the decision. 
Of course, we uh, thank and we uh, uh, respect all the uh, uh, statements that were issued yesterday from officials and from grassroots and uh, uh, international organizations that supports uh, the Palestinian civil society. And we expect that this campaign and pressure should continue in order to be fruitful, in order to cause for the Israelis to cancel their decision. And this is Yonatan Ger, who is from the joint Israeli-Palestinian organization Combatants for Peace. They were not designated under this decision, but they strongly oppose it. And let's hear his reaction. The decision of Benny Gantz to issue an order declaring six Palestinian human rights organizations as terrorist groups is abhorrent. If the violence committed on a daily basis in the occupied Palestinian territories by Israeli soldiers and Jewish settlers wasn't bad enough, now Gantz is seeking to close the organizations who monitor and report the, on these actions and fight to seek justice. Combatants for Peace intends to defy the order and continue to work with these organizations, be the consequences as they may. As no one in the current Israeli government seems able to set boundaries to this abysmal decision, we have reached out to the Biden administration in hope that it acts decisively to protect human rights defenders in Palestine and in Israel, as the U.S. does around the world. I truly hope that President Biden helps us to save us from ourselves. Hagar, what do you think would be the implications on Palestinian civil society if this move went through as planned right now? I think... that the first kind of target of this move is basically to stop European and international funding in general to the organizations. As a journalist covering the West Bank, I've always known these organizations as civil society organizations. Adamir, who we heard Sahar Francis, I quote their data about administrative detentions because they are an organization that collects this sort of data. And it's not like there is an alternative. Yeah, not, not really. So obviously the first thing that this designation kind of targets is the funding of the organization. By now, I do have to say, quite a lot of European representatives have made comments about this move and they said while they are taking it seriously and they are looking for farther material, etc., etc., they say that previous allegations that were brought forward about civil society organizations were not substantiated. So in the past, there were already attempts to make Europeans stop and funding. And it didn't really work. And it didn't really work. So maybe this time it will work. It could work either because donors won't be excited or wouldn't want to fund organizations that were designated as terror organizations. Another thing that could happen, and we are yet to know, is problems in the banking system. Whether Israel will actually try to confiscate money, I guess that's an option. Another option would obviously be detentions and indictments. And if there will be indictments, then... Personally may- against people active in the organizations. Yes. It's uh, also important to note that the designation was made according to Israeli law, which does not apply in the West Bank. And in order for it, for the, these organizations to be considered... as terror organizations or illegal in the West Bank, the Israeli military needs to sign an order, which they haven't done yet. Interesting. Which is also interesting. They say it's for bureaucratic re- uh, reasons, well, like we'll, we'll wait and see, right? And that's also something to take into consideration because right now, actually legally in the West Bank, They are legal organizations. Therefore, as far as I understand it, as I'm, and I'm obviously not a legal expert, you can't be indicted for working in these organizations. You, 
can be indicted for being a member of the PFLP, obviously. Um, so that's another thing. Yeah, we don't know. Um, we'll have to wait and see where it goes from here. Uh, I want to ask you one last question, Hagar. Um, where is the Palestinian authority in all this story? I mean, I heard one denunciation from the Palestinian Prime Minister, Shtaye, but it didn't seem like this was on the top of the agenda for the PA right now. So from what I understand, the PA did come to the organizations and like offer their their support and there was some sort of like a meeting between them. And to my understanding, they are working also against this, this decision. But I think it's also worth noting that these organizations, a lot of them are not considered to be, you know, cheerleaders of the PA. Human rights groups, um, they need to criticize. Also, you had, for yeah. example, a BISAN, which is a, like a research institute. Uh, their director was actually detained very recently by the PA. Yeah, he was detained by Israel, but then he was detained by the PA as well for participating uh, in protests against the killing of Nizar Banat, who was an anti-corruption um, activist and uh, who was uh, who died um, in PA detention. In PA, uh, yeah, custody. So it's I think it's worth, you know, um, remembering that as well uh, in the context. It's a complicated uh, story, but a very important one. And uh, thank you, Hagar, for your great coverage of this and for coming today to talk to us. And we urge the listeners who are interested to learn more about the story to follow Hagar's reporting on Haaretz.com. Thank you very much. And that's it for our episode today. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you, listeners. We'll be back on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.